Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Robner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping at 9 a.m. Central Time on Friday, September 28th this week. We were supposed to come to you on Thursday from Austin, Texas, as part of the Texas Tribune's annual TribFest conference, and we had a really great event. Unfortunately, the person taping it didn't have such a great event, and the tape turned out to be unusable. So while we can't bring you some good audience questions, nor the excellent interview we had with Dr. Minnie Kalon of the Dell Medical School, who we will have back soon, we're going to at least bring you this week's health policy news, so let's get to it. I am still here in Austin at the Texas Tribune offices, but back in Washington is the rest of our panel. Joanne Kennan of Politico. We had fun in Austin. (laughs) Anna Edney of Bloomberg News. Good morning again. And Alice Olstein of Politico. Good morning. So the big health news of the week also qualifies as immigration news, the Trump administration's effort to make it more difficult for legal immigrants to get green cards. The proposed rules, which conveniently dropped last Saturday night, make some big changes to who can be labeled a, quote, public charge, meaning if they accept certain forms of government aid, they may never be able to live and work in the U.S. permanently. Now, those who have taken cash welfare payments have long been required to prove they will not be a drain on the U.S. Treasury in order to get a green card. But this would expand the definition of who could be denied way beyond that. What does this rule cover that the previous rule didn't? Alice, I think you were the one who talked about this. Sure. Um, So the rule expands what will count against an immigrant who is applying for a green card to Um, beyond, uh, like you said, cash welfare, TANF, to count uh, Medicaid, food stamps, Medicare Part D, the drug program, housing vouchers, lots of different social services. And it's sort of a meeting of two different trends in the Trump administration. One, the the severe limits on both legal and illegal immigration and the sort of curtailing of who who is allowed to uh, remain in the country on a permanent basis, um, but also the expansion of what counts as welfare and what counts as someone sort of depending on the government because a lot, if not most, of the people who take those social services are working. Many of them have U.S. citizen kids who could be harmed if they are afraid to uh, use these programs and Um, This could have a chilling effect far beyond the people who are actually impacted. The original leaked details of what the rule might be earlier this year um, said it might be retroactive, as in services used in the past could count against you. Now it's only after the rule is finalized uh, will use of services uh, count. But you can't think that millions of immigrants living their lives across the country will be aware of all these little details. And so without knowing what could land you in peril in your eventual green card interview, you will have a lot of people afraid to use a lot of services that they um, and their children may be legally entitled to. Yeah, we've we've talked so much about the the Medicaid work requirements and, you know, whether it's really about getting people to work or whether it's just a way to kind of deter people from getting Medicaid. Um, I I assume that the argument is the same here, that that it isn't so much whether these people who are, you know, taking uh, subsidies to help them afford their prescription drugs on Medicare um, are going to, you know, 
actually be be some kind of a drain on the U.S. Treasury, and more about maybe the intent is to deter people from taking taking up these social services that are available. Yes, and and so the Trump administration expects to save money by deterring people from using these programs, but there are fears that it could cost a lot of money in other ways if people delay medical care because they aren't on enrolling in Medicaid or they aren't enrolling their kids in CHIP um, and they end up needing to go to the emergency room when things get really bad. That's more maybe more expensive in the long run if people are afraid to get themselves and their kids vaccinated. There could be more outbreaks and there could be a lot of public health threats and a lot of expense in other ways. And I, I think, go ahead, Anna. well, there were there was somebody um, who came up yesterday after we did the podcast live who um, mentioned that she was even rethinking whether she should um, sign her mom up for Obamacare for Affordable Care Act subsidies. Um, and as Joanne mentioned yesterday, those aren't in the in the draft rule now, but they are they were in the the previous leaked version that those would be included in the the public charge. And so the chilling effect um, seems to be it could be even wider than any of those 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 programs, and obviously um, wider than maybe the administration thought. And that you know to think that you might not want to help your mom be able to get health care is, um, I mean, that's just a heartbreaking story to hear. And we know that, you know, all of us keep, you know, it's very hard to keep track of changing rules and complicated federal requirements. So even um, things that people are entitled to, like it's not yet clear whether CHIP, Children's Health Insurance Program, is going to be included in this rule or not in this program, in these, in these new rules that are being promulgated now. The status is unclear. So, even if people decide, even if the government decides, okay, CHIP is okay, we won't hold, we, you know, we, we want the kids covered. Because of this perception and confusion in the example Anna just gave, you may end up having families who are entitled to things not getting them, and that is not good for their health, and possibly, you know, as in some cases, we'll be paying for it in other ways. We'll just be shifting costs or having more costs. We also know that... Um, Judging from the experience of trying to get um, Latinos to sign up for Obamacare, even people, and Obamacare will not be included in, in, in this public charge rule, but um, we know that people, uh, if they have a family that's called mixed status, some family members are legal and some are not. We know from the, the experience of the last few years that people who are legal don't necessarily sign up for things to which they are entitled and to which from which they can benefit because they're afraid it will somehow lead to uh, trouble for family members that are not legal. So um, it, it's, 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 a, it's a potentially messy, messy situation. Alex, uh, Alex mentioned vaccination. I mean, that's just something that the government should be encouraging. I mean, we'll get someone yelling and saying vaccines are bad. Okay, that, that's just it goes <laughs> with being a health reporter. But, um, you know, all of us around this table <laughs> think that you should, I mean, my kids are vaccinated. Um, so they're kids who, um, who may not get things like their basic immunizations. And vaccines, I think, shows, I mean, that's such a perfect example of one person's health care helping so many other people in, um, and, and kind of the wider effect that this might have. You know, those districts that have tough, tough school requirements, you know, they, they may, th these kids get into school and they'll get their, you know, they'll get their vaccinations. But they'll, there will probably be more gaps and, and, uh, or more delays, you know, kids getting them later or not getting all of them or just a mess. I think so. What is what is the status of this? It's not. It's not. Per, it's, it, it doesn't go into effect right away, right? No, it is currently open for public comment. That's a sixty-day period. It started 
a few days ago when when this dropped. Um, uh, but I, I wanted to sort of circle back to I think it's really interesting that the Obamacare subsidies subsidies are not included right now. And I think that's a real sign of what the ideology of this rule is. It's not just about saving the government money or who um, or overall across the board in an even way, you know, being against uh, immigrants uh depending on government subsidies. This is really targeted at the poorest of the poor, not a middle-class person who is is taking government subsidies for their health insurance, um, even though that also costs the government money. And so it's really targeting this world at the people who are at the very bottom of the income and it's spectrum. A re- yeah, and it's a redefinition of welfare with negative connotations. Medicaid has not traditionally been considered by most as a welfare program. It's a health program that serves low-income people, but it's a health program. TANF, the the cash welfare program, what we used to call welfare, we now call TANF, that's a welfare program. Food stamps is something that people might go on and off for shorter periods of time. There are periods of need. There are working people who, you know, it's not that if you're getting all this, including Medicaid, you know, most people on Medicaid, other than the nursing home population or the, the aged population and the kids, you know, they're, they're already working. So this is sort of by lumping everything into, quote, welfare and calling it welfare, um, you're, you're having an extra – welfare has different connotations than government benefits has. And you're speaking, you know, as Alice pointed out, it's toward the poorest and it is a different conversation. I mean, it didn't, did not originate with the Trump administration. There have been people, conservatives, who've used this terminology, who've, who've regarded some of these programs as welfare. But it has never be, been front and central and embodied in a policy such as the one we see going forward now. Okay, well, I'm sure we will have more on this to come. Um, So I know the nomination hearings for Judge Brett Kavanaugh have been the dominant story of the week, to say the least. But there was also news. Showed up yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. I know. Going on exact same time. But there was health news this week on the only abortion case Judge Kavanaugh has directly decided as a member of the D.C. Circuit involving a pregnant minor who was in HHS immigration custody in Texas who wanted an abortion. Um, the young woman went through Texas's judicial bypass, was was deemed you know mature enough to get the abortion. Uh, the, the head of, of the uh, Trump administration's Office of Refugee Resettlement tried to convince her otherwise. She was blocked. They went to court. She eventually got her abortion. But the case itself is continuing on behalf of others who are similarly situated, um, i.e. pregnant minors in immigration custody. Uh, Alice, you were at the hearing. What happened there? Yes. So the hearing is now uh, at the uh, District Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. And uh, I went to the hearing and it is now a class action suit. Like you said, the who is in the class is uh, at at, um, is a subject of debate. And so this is concerning, um, like you said, um, pregnant minors in HHS custody. These are uh, undocumented immigrants who came to the U.S., many of them alone, some of them with their parents, part of this family separations issue ongoing. And um, the Trump administration says that no amount of obstacle they can put in front of these teenagers uh exercising their constitutional right to get an abortion should count as an undue burden. That's a legal standard from a previous Supreme Court case. And they said that no burden is an undue burden because these uh, young 
people can always opt to self-deport, essentially. Um, they It's called voluntary departure. Um, and now they... <laughs> so basically, judges. if you basically you don't you still have in theory a right to abortion. You just have to leave. You just don't have a right to abortion here in the U.S. Well, but the right to an abortion is under U.S. law and is not under other countries' laws. And so the judges were were pretty critical of that line of argument, saying, "How can you honor a constitutional right by making someone leave the zone in which that constitutional right exists?" Um, and so there was a lot of back and forth over that. Um, but I think it's a real sign of where the um, legal debate over abortion is going to go in the years to come. I think a lot of it, there's been so much focus on Roe versus Wade, but I think there needs to be a lot more focus on the idea of what counts as an undue burden, because I think that's where it's really going to drill down. And, right. and, and, and uh, okay. Justice Kennedy, who who uh, is leaving the court making way for Kavanaugh, or should Kavanaugh not get it, whoever else would get it instead. Um, Kennedy was one of the co-authors of that 1992 decision known as uh, Casey versus Planned Parenthood. That's where the undue burden uh, rule came out. And, you know, we were in Texas yesterday talking about that. The last huge case to go before the Supreme Court, the last really big decisive abortion case was a Texas case, which I think was two years ago. And it was Texas had a bunch of restrictions, including one that a number of states have had about um, requiring the doctor to have admitting privileges at a hospital and, um, and and various other things. It was a complicated law with a lot of provisions. And the Supreme Court at that point with Justice Kennedy still on it said, yes, that is an undue burden. Um, and that's one of the um, backdrops. I mean, I, I agree with Alice. I mean, you, there's a situation where um, even if Roe itself, I mean, we don't know what's going to happen to Roe, but even in, there is a scene, there is a scenario where Roe itself technically does not get overthrown, but the concept of undue burden gets redefined so that um, things that the court is now saying, no, that's a burden, you can't do it, that future court would say, ah, that's fine. So um, the, the, the... And there's, there's <laughs> already there's already cases like that in the lower courts coming oh, up. something like 13. Yeah. Yes. Texas, right. but, but ones who have done Texas-type restrictions that were struck down as recently, as Joanne said, it's two years ago, um, that are being upheld by more conservative judges. So that would give the Supreme Court a chance to, to revisit even what it said, you know, most recently with... Um, you know, Justice Kennedy's vote. So, you know, it, it, it does, I think there's this sort of black and white focus on will Roe survive? And it's like, there are lots and lots of ways to make abortion essentially unavailable, even while, you know, the existence of a right to abortion continues. There's a case in, in Louisiana right now that's quite similar to the te- the case that was thrown out in Texas, the, the statute that was thrown out in Texas. And that, in fact, is going ahead and, and the state of Louisiana up to now is... is succeeding with that. So, I mean, we'll we'll be coming back to that uh, uh, many times in the future, but that's... Um that's that's one of the larger issues by this immigrant uh, the immigrant case does does circle into this larger question of undue uh, of undue burden and right, and, and Kavanaugh's role in all of this he um, cited w- on he. Uh, ruled on behalf of the Trump administration saying that they could intervene to block uh, these young women from getting abortions even when the lower court judges um, granted um, them that right. 
All right. Well, we will clearly be back to this, too. But for right now, I want to talk a little bit of, of election politics. The midterms are now less than six weeks away. And healthcare is playing a more prominent role in many races than many of us predicted. Um, everything from state attorneys general races to governorships to members of the U.S. House and Senate. It appears that both high drug prices and pre-existing condition protections are major issues in the fall campaigns. Uh, which one is getting more traction? Um, is, is, and are you guys surprised at how this is playing out? Should all three of us shout at once? <laughs> yes. Pre-existing conditions. <laughs> it's in so many ads. Every day I get a press release from a campaign or from, well, it's it's from Democrats. <laughs> Republicans, only a small, small, small handful want to talk about pre-existing conditions because uh, they don't want to remind folks that they voted several times last year in the House anyways. Um, and many of the senators. Yes, and many of the senators to um, uh, repeal parts or all of Obamacare in ways that would have threatened the um, ban on uh, discriminating against people with pre-existing conditions. And they don't want to remind folks that um, Republicans... Uh, with the Trump administration's backing, are currently arguing in court uh, to strike down Obamacare's protections for pre-existing conditions. And so Democrats are just uh, sounding the alarm in all uh, just hundreds of campaigns um, and saying, I will, you know, fight in D.C. to to keep this protection for you. And, and that, it's really yeah, resonating. That court case, and, and we'll let it. I'll flip it to Anna in a second to talk about drug prices. But that court case was really a political game changer because it's 20 states, 18, 18 attorneys general and two governors went to court. Republicans. Republicans. <laughs> All Republicans. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, uh, to um, basically overturn Obamacare. You know, we've been down this road more times than we can count. And um, it, it, But what really happened to really make it an... It, you know, this political hot potato into and a few months ago, it was shaping up that costs were going to be the dominant health issue, not the only issue. Obamacare wasn't going to go away. But the, the national conversation was sort of switching to costs. And then kaboom, Jeff Sessions, the attorney general, files a brief in support of this this Texas and Wisconsin led conservative lawsuit saying, yeah, let's let's go back and repeal Obamacare. Now, Sessions um, in a, in a a remarkable piece of political, I don't know what to call genius. it. <laughs> <laughs> Reverse genius. <laughs> Didn't try to, he's not um, arguing to repeal all of Obamacare. He's just trying to get rid of the part people like. Um, and his Republican <laughs> we, we should actually go back and, and talk about the legal basis of this. The, the, what, the, what the 20 or the, the 18 attorneys general and two governors are arguing is that Congress, in getting rid of the uh, tax penalty, penalty, right, the tax penalty for the individual mandate last year, um, inadvertently or maybe advertently, um, uh, uh, pulled down the, the foundation uh, by which the ACA was found constitutional by the Supreme Court in 2012. And therefore, without the individual penalty, the whole rest of the law becomes unconstitutional. It has to come crashing what, down. Right. So what, what the Justice Department argued is that, no, 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 we don't actually think it's the whole law, but we do think that the parts of the law that protect people with pre-existing conditions need to fall. Yeah. Right. I mean, but that was the main thing that that the Justice Department is is now is arguing, which, you know, from from a legal point of view, looked like it was less extreme. But from a political point of view, in some ways, it's worse. It's like we only think that the part that needs to go is the most popular part of the law. Sure. And it, and it's legally dubious as well. I mean, if you look at the congressional record, Cong 
Congress clearly did not intend for the rest of it to come crashing down because they, they tried and failed they for a year. They tried <laughs> and they voted many times to repeal the whole thing and they couldn't get it done. And, uh, you know, I remember last year, so Republican lawmaker after Republican lawmaker swearing that no matter what happens, they want to keep pre-existing conditions protections. Right. So so basically, pre-existing conditions are really, really at stake here. The judge um, in Fort Worth, uh, in Fort Worth. Was it two weeks ago, whenever it was, a week more or two than ago? that. It was it was, was the day whenever, after it was the day after Labor Day. Time is a flat circle. <laughs> um, went uh, is is um, sounded very sympathetic to the conservative point of view. I mean, we, you never know until they actually write their decision. He has not written his decision. I mean, the reporters in the courtroom came. Uni- every one of them came out of there thinking he was quite sympathetic to uh, some kind of partial repeal. Um, you know, we'll know when we know. In the meantime, politically, it totally changed the story. The Republicans then tried to come out with a bill that said we're pr- protecting pre-existing conditions. You know, for a minute, it looked like a smart political move. It looked like it would, I said a minute, Alice, you're shaking your head. <laughs> for, you know, for a couple of hours, maybe. It, it looked like not only could it help Republicans, but that it would um, maybe put some of the red state Democrats in a bind. And then when people figure out, oh, the, what the bill does, what that bill did, which they're not even talking about, it was so discredited so fast it went away. But that bill said, would have said, yes, you, the insurer has to cover you, even if you have pre-existing conditions. What it didn't do is they didn't have to cover your pre-existing condition. So if you have cancer, oh, we can't discriminate against you. You have a pre-existing condition. We are, in fact, going to sell you insurance. But it's not going to cover chemotherapy or radiation or, or oncology. So um, that they're not which, even... Which I, think, which I think I pointed out at the time... That's the way a lot of, you know, Republicans like to talk about high-risk pools for people with pre-existing conditions. That's the way a lot of the high-risk pools worked. They, whatever oh, the condition work. was that you didn't work, the condition that got you into the high-risk pool usually wasn't covered. It was usually for like a year. But still, if you have cancer and you need treatment and now you can't get regular insurance, it's like, sure, you can go into the high-risk pool. But it's not going to cover your cancer treatment either. Well, so that was essentially what they were talking about. But now let's let Anna talk about drug prices because people are <laughs> yes, bad about that, that too. Say. So, so, yeah, so Anna, what happened with drug prices? That was going to be our big issue. And Congress passed a couple of drug price bills this week while everybody was watching other things. Right, they did. Um, but, you know, I think there there was a thought maybe uh, earlier this year, maybe early summer, where um, this was going to be the main issue. I mean, you had the president um, talking about it still, HHS Secretary um, Alex Azar constantly tweeting about it. Um, and what I think you've seen happen is... Um, while the administration is still sort of uh, chipping away at this, Congress, there isn't a whole lot that they can do. Um, So as you mentioned, they passed two bills, um, and they are both related to what are called gag clauses. So when you go to the pharmacy, um, they... Your your pharmacy benefit manager or your insurer may have had this sort of agreement with the pharmacist that they made them sign, saying, you know, if the insurance, if using insurance, your copay is more expensive than paying cash, you can't tell them the customer that they can actually save money by paying cash. Which um, is just mind blowing, anyway. The idea that your insurance is going to require you to pay more than drug would cost if you just bought it out of pocket. It's absolutely mind-blowing. And I think that's why this is the one thing that has passed um, out of Congress, because it's so egregious. Um, On the other hand, it doesn't do a whole lot to bring down drug prices themselves. Joanne pointed this out that, you know, previously that 
we we're talking about two separate things. It can be a, a consumer's out of pocket costs, or it can be the price that a drug, you know, that a pharmaceutical company actually prices the drug at. And so, you know, that might move on out of pocket costs, but it, it, it was an egregious practice. It wasn't widely implemented. Um, as far as I can tell, there were some big pharmacy benefit managers that came out and said, we'd never do that. Um, and so this is sort of probably the most Congress can agree on. Um, and so it's tough to run um, to have campaign ads about something you're not going to do anything about. Um, <laughs> and, and just and just to clarify, this bill doesn't require pharmacists to tell you if you could save money. It just, it just requires, it just banned the idea that they can't tell you, right? right? It's not right. an affirmative requirement. Right, yeah. And, you know, I guess that, you know, that's probably going to depend pharmacist by pharmacist or for the consumer, um, you know, how savvy you are in, in this. And um, It's really hard to figure these things out. It's I mean, really it's, hard. It's, you know, and particularly if you change insurers and, you, you know, the, you know it, it's not an easy thing to do. All, you know, those of us on this podcast are all really sophisticated, but as we mentioned once before, when we all, all of us, the whole gang went out for dinner, you know, we spent the whole time talking about all of our problems with our health insurance, and we're really sophisticated consumers. So figuring this out, knowing that you should, like, how many people are we even going to know to ask the pharmacist, oh, what would this cost without insurance, and is it cheaper? You would think you have insurance for a reason, yeah. and it's going to make things cheaper for you. That just is... The way it goes, but it I think there always. there was one bright spot to maybe try to end on a, a higher note. Um, there, so a lot of this drug pricing talk started um, with the hepatitis C drugs. This was back in 2014 when they were approved. They were essentially cures, um, which we hadn't seen before. But their prices, this is for um, Sovaldi and Harvoni from Gilead, were eighty four thousand, ninety four thousand um, dollars. So they, you know, that was a really tough pill essentially for for people to to swallow um particularly if you know you might be paying out of pocket for them so the um the company said they were going to reduce the price to $24,000 which is about um what insurers might be paying with rebates now um and so you know for for the Medicaid population for those in prison. This might help states particularly be able to afford hepatitis C drugs. Right, for, because that's where hepatitis C is, is mo most common. Right, exactly. So it, it might be able to, you know, the states were already looking for solutions. They wanted to get it to as many people as they could, but they weren't able to afford it. We saw, I think it was Louisiana, come up with a really interesting idea to um, to try and get everybody the drugs by doing a subscription service. So they would pay Gilead or, or whatever company a certain amount of money to be able to get all the drugs that they needed. And, you know, and so that was a, an interesting way of looking at this. And so I think Gilead is trying to come at it and, and create some goodwill on their end. But yeah, we also pointed out that, you know, when, when these, the Sovaldi was sort of the drug. When Sovaldi came out, about four or five years ago with this 84,000 price tag. One, it was a an, it was a breakthrough drug. It's an important drug. It's curing people, not just helping them live with something. It's a big deal. And it cost $84,000. And at the time, the whole drug pricing conversation started, we all thought, $84,000? That's no longer that expensive. I mean, it's ex it's still expensive. But there are drugs that, are, some of these new cancer drugs, some of the other drugs coming out are costing more than that. And um, Multiples this, more than that, like half a million dollars. Right, some a of the lot cancer of them. drugs, and and yes, you know, 
it's an exciting age to, you know, it is an age of innovation. It is an age of scientific breakthroughs. There are good things happening. Some of us have friends and family who've benefited from some of these good things that are happening. But we and the rest of the world has not figured out how to pay for it. And um, something like these gag rules, it's going to be some short-term relief out of pocket for some individuals, and it'll be welcome, and it may help them short-term. But it is changing a copay for a limited number of drugs is not the same thing as figuring out how to deal with drug prices in America and, and the rest of the world. All right. Well, well, I want to visit one more issue um, because we haven't talked about open enrollment uh, for, for quite a few weeks. Um, open enrollment for the Affordable Care Act kicks off November 1st. It turns out that some of those really big increases that seem to be coming earlier this summer that we talked about may not happen after all. Uh, case in point is Maryland, where the 30% increases we talked about earlier in the summer have now become a 13% reduction following the state's implementation of a reinsurance program and some other kinds of changes designed to mitigate some of the Trump administration policies that threaten to push premiums higher. Uh, Maryland isn't alone in having small increases or even uh, reductions in premiums. Uh, I noticed that uh, Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar gave a speech uh, basically claiming that the Trump administration has stabilized the program. Um, do you guys agree with that? Well, when you make a mess and you partially clean it up, uh, <laughs> you could claim that you, uh, you it's... it's uh, you did the right thing. Um, so the Trump administration has been granting these reinsurance waivers to more and more states now, and that is seeming to have a major, major effect in in bringing down. Um, but it's still not that many states. It's right? not that it's many like states. Six or seven. I, I right. don't remember the list off of my head. But, but, but in the states them. that they've done it, and and also mm-hmm. in the states they've done it, we've it's seen a huge it. impact. I just yes. remind reinsurance, Alaska, yeah. right? Maine, um, right? Uh, yeah, Maine, yeah. Uh, Minnesota. Uh, I'm trying to think of the other ones, but, I don't but think you know, the, got theirs. I think they yeah. withdrew their request. But the important thing is that, that reinsurance basically takes the very high cost people um, and and re- essentially reinsures them. You know, helps helps pave their very high bills, which makes uh, which allows insurance companies to not charge everybody else so much because they're going to have those most expensive people, you know, taken care of. Uh, and it and it, it really has been. And there was a reinsurance program in the Affordable Care Act when it passed. It just it was only a temporary program. And it, and it expired. So putting it back has has had a an impact uh, on premiums there. But that that's that that's one reason I, that premiums were going down. But also, I mean, isn't it just the fact that some of last year's huge increases were just too big? Yes, I, I think there 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 was um, insurers panicked. It was the first year the Trump administration was making all of these changes that were undermining the Affordable Care Act and hurting open enrollment and and doing and this the and CSRs that. the, the, the cost sharing subsidies. Not only were they finally pulled, even though the the insurers in the states ended up figuring out how to deal with it, there was just a huge amount of anxiety about that. Insurers pulled out, insurers raised rates. It, you mm-hmm. know, it was part of this. That was probably the single biggest source of uncertainty for the insurers. And when everything didn't come crashing down and a lot of people did sign up, um, uh, there's now sort of a correction going on and coming back to a more sort of normal rate of, of growth. And, and also a lot of insurers are, are um, coming into the market and we don't have because bear Because they're making money. Yes, yes. <laughs> And so you get more competition, and and that brings down prices as well. I think what's interesting to note, um, though, is that the 
um, Maryland specifically said this, is their reduction could have been even bigger if it um, wasn't for some of the things that the Trump administration has done. So while it's still great that there's a reduction, um, it's, you know, it seems likely that people could have seen a bigger reduction in what they're going to pay if, um, if there weren't, you know, that little bit of uncertainty left, I think, um, you know, repealing the individual mandate. um, And, you know, maybe this, this, Texas lawsuit. Who knows? You know what? What? At, whether insurers are? I don't know if they're incorporating that or not. Really. Um, and and we, you know, we saw that in a lot of states where the insurance commissioner would come out and say, you know, here's rates next year. Are, you know, only going up two or three percent. But by the way, if the Trump administration hadn't allowed short-term plans and hadn't, you know, eliminated the individual mandate penalty and all these other things, we would have seen a reduction. So some of these states where the the increases are really small, um, the the, the premiums would be much, much less if not for the things that the administration did. But we're also going into, you know, a, another, I mean, I think they should really just change the name of the law of the Perpetual Perpetual Uncertainty Care Act, because now we're going into, as Julie just mentioned, the, the mandate penalty won't be there next year. The association health plans are coming on the market. The short-term health plans are coming on the market. It's the, the, the lawsuit is going to be, is a big question mark. And then even if the, whatever happens in this Texas court, or it's a federal court in Texas, it'll be appealed. And I mean, it's going to be another two years of, of all of us having running around reading briefs. And, um, you know, it, it, we don't know. Yes, it looks like it's sort of going to be around. All the rates are not final yet, but we're, we're probably looking at something like typically, you know, there'll be state variation, there'll be plan variation, there'll be individual variation. But we're looking like a, about a 2% increase is what Secretary Azar said yesterday. So um, that's a low increase for insurance. What will it be next year? I have no idea. You know, none of us know. It'll, we'll be sitting here or wherever we are, you know, <laughs> talking about, well, this year the rates did such and such. We, it is not yet a stable, pro- it is a program that is surviving. It is a program <clears throat> that in many ways has beat expectations given what's going on politically. It is not a completely f- smooth pun- functioning program by any anybody's definition. It is not doing all the things that its backers wanted to do back in 2010 or 2009. Um, but it's it has, it's, has muddled through and it has continued to muddle through and it is serving needs of some people, and it has a constituency that the Republicans found they couldn't kill last year. So, you know, low premiums this year, and who knows what's next. And and states are doing more than, than just passing those reinsurance um, waivers and, and implementing that, although that is making a huge difference. But some states are passing their own state individual mandates. Some states are banning or really severely restricting short-term plans. Uh, I know Maryland is one of them. Um, and yeah, and a bunch of others. Yeah. And so, and we could see more depending on what the impact is in those states. And so, I, I think that um, I, the those states seem to all have something in common politically. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yes, I, I think um, I think you're going to see states taking those actions to bring down um, those premiums. And well, I we will. Oh, go ahead, Anna. Oh, I was just going to say that I'd point out, um, <clears throat> in the sense of um, any you know insurers getting more comfortable, um, I think. Wall Street obviously isn't the end all be all, but you're seeing um, their stocks doing really well, and pharmaceutical companies the same because you know they're you know Wall Street also isn't as sure that the administration's really going to do anything to affect drug prices, um, and so there's there's a good amount amount of comfort on the business side um, for insurers and for pharmaceutical companies. Wall Street's fleeing kind of the technology stocks and and looking to healthcare right now to try and um, find some comfort. 
Yeah, well, well, we will be back to this as open enrollment gets closer. Um, I think we're going to bring this to a close. That is our show for today. Uh, thank you to the panel for coming in for a second day, and thank you to our host of the Texas Tribune for facilitating our redo. We are sorry, again, we couldn't bring you the live event from yesterday. Um, but if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Also, as usual, you can email us your questions or comments. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org, or you can tweet me. I'm at jrovner, guys. At Anna Edney. At Alice Holstein. At Joanne Cannon. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.